Welcome to the Yogi MD Podcast. It's Nadine, yoga teacher, health coach, and retired doctor, here to bring you and your body together, not in sickness, but in health. Thanks for taking this time for yourself. Dear wise women, you enrich my life in more ways than you could possibly know. In this very special episode, which I dedicated to you moms, grandmas, aunts, sisters, wives, partners, daughters, I am so grateful for the wisdom imparted by my guests, therapist Lisa Lackey and my sister Daphne Bishop. Take your time with this episode. It's a beautiful conversation about what it means to be a strong woman, specifically a strong black woman. And don't skip the mindful minute. It's an original poem I wrote years ago when I was healing and learning about what true strength really looked like for me. I love you all. And I wish you peace, joy, and health. You deserve it, and you're worth it. Lisa, oh my goodness. I have been thinking about talking to you for a while now because with this whole pandemic situation, I think it's brought a lot of suppressed issues to light. Mm -hmm. And... Mm -hmm. As you know, I'm a fan. I'd loved having you on Notable Quotables. I felt like we were old friends. And I thought about you immediately when I was thinking about the strong black woman syndrome. Lisa, I can't wait to hear your gems and your insight here as we get into this discussion. So, mm. Thank you so much for having me. And I feel the same way. I felt like it was an immediate connection with you. And that felt really nice and even better during COVID. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Strength. The strong black woman syndrome specifically. What does that mean? Mm. Well, you know, as I share with you, this impacts me deeply. Um, on so many levels, you know, personally, professionally, ancestrally, um, the impact of, of, of racism that contributes to that syndrome, um, living in survival and thinking that it's strength and that there, you know, isn't a possibility for thriving. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up mostly around my mother's family. And there were mostly women, not as many men. So all of my cousins, mostly female, you know, not maybe two or three male cousins and um, strong black women, aunts, mom, grandmother, you know, play aunts, strong black woman. And what I saw when I was growing up is Um, just this limitless capacity 
to do and do and do and do and do and do and do. And not just for your family, but, you know, as I'm thinking about now, like even my, my, they, they all had careers. And so it was on top of that, that they were doing and doing and doing and doing. Mm. Um, I remember when my grandfather died, it was the first time I'd ever seen my grandmother cry. Like I, I couldn't believe it because she was so, uh, I guess I'll put together, you know, mm-hmm. um, and to see her just in this completely different, vulnerable, scared place. I mean, she'd been married to my grandfather since she was 18 and they, you know, that's the only, that, you know, they grew up together and, I got a glimpse, you know, as I look back now um, of who she truly was, but either couldn't afford to be or never had a model for being authentic and strong. Oh, that's, wow. Okay. So in my parents' living room is a picture of my great-grandmother, who was definitely a matriarch, and we like to joke and say she ruled with an iron fist. Mm -hmm. And you can tell just from the picture. I vaguely remember her when I was little. She lived with us, but she died when I was maybe, mm, I was young, uh, under Mm -hmm. 10. Mm -hmm. But the picture is, it just speaks volumes. She looks very austere, And now let's hear from Daphne Bishop, a prior guest. She is a mom, wife, daughter, aunt, attorney, and beloved sister. For me, the picture was like the head of the mafia, (laughs) you know, this very scary, (laughs) this very scary, strong woman. What we've been told about her is that she was a very controlling person. You know, she was in charge of her children's lives and her grandchildren's lives. And she had her reasons for doing that, you know, and her story about her becoming a, you know, a widow, uh, you know, so she was widowed and becomes this young single mother, you know, in Haiti in the when? I don't know when, in the early 1900s? Yeah. She really had to do what she had to do to survive, right? And so if that meant she was going to marry her daughter off or, you know, partner her daughter off with somebody who would take care of the family financially, then that's what she was going to do. But yeah, so we grew up with this um, almost like great shadow figure. And I've never seen, I don't think I've ever seen a picture of her spouse Mm-mm. and I've never really heard anything about him besides that he died young and I think that he went blind that's that's all I've ever heard about him 
the family that we grew up more closely with is um, very female and and dominated and with females black women with very strong personalities there's a lot of stuff we don't know there's a lot of stuff that those matriarchs didn't share and they had trauma they must have right the thing is we can definitely pay homage i don't want to disrespect our ancestors absolutely they did a lot for us they did what they had to do We talked about our great-grandmother, but we didn't really talk about our own grandmother who Mm -hmm. lived with us really for, you know, our whole lives. Mm -hmm. She was like mom and dad's co-pilot, you know, that she was the one that was there, like in charge of the food and getting us ready for school. And this is a woman who never complained, who was very quiet, who kept to herself, extremely loving, especially with us kids. Somebody who, when you talk about obligation and service and, you know, like this pillar of strength, Mm -hmm. um, this kind of quiet fortitude, that was our other model that we had Mm -hmm. of somebody who just, you know, like does all that work. And so as I'm grumbling about, you know, my kids and the dishes and the all this stuff, I'm always the one who does it at the end of the day because I learned that, you know, like I... I saw that, that she was the one that was always taking care of and doing. And I even have her picture on my stove. And I have this little quote on my stove about cooking for loved ones being this act of service, you know, that you do. So, yeah, I mean, that's that's another kind of strength. That's another version of the strong Black woman that, that we saw that I know that really sank deep into me. And I know, like, I'm much more likely to kind of push my own needs and feelings and wants to the side and to do for for others in my family. And I I think that's directly from watching our grandmother. Mm -hmm. And our mother. Yeah. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Times evolve. We learn new things every day. So I want to talk about or ask you, based on what we're talking about right now with the the matriarchs who back in the day were the bedrocks and austere and couldn't show any moments of vulnerability. They saw that as weakness. How has the management of stress and strength changed through the generations, uh, the great generation, baby boomers, Gen X. How have you seen that change? Very slowly and, um, and I think for boomers, not that much (laughs) Um, because even though I'm I'm a boomer, and even though I have sought out um, different measures, you know, to 
deal with stress and anxiety and depression and burnout, you know, like therapy, like women's circles, um, like at times medication, like um, spiritual, you know, growth opportunities. Now, those are different than my mother. And, and in the back of my mind, when I first started to, you know, explore support, um, in the back of my mind, I, I still thought I should be able to do this on my own. Mm. What's wrong with me? My life isn't that hard compared to, <laughs> and, you know, just kind of continuing to show up, I feel less and less guilty about it, but there was a real turning point. And my um, family and I were in Arizona and we were, were talking and kind of sharing with each other, my, the family, my husband, my children, sharing kind of our needs and what was going well, what wasn't going well. And my daughter at that time, maybe she was 15, she said her wish for me, she says, mommy, I just wish you would take better care of yourself. Mm. Mm. And I was like, wow, you know, what am I modeling for her? Mm. What am I modeling for her? What am I modeling for my sons? What am I modeling for my husband? What am I modeling for myself? But didn't you think you were modeling stability and strength? Absolutely. And consistency and reliability and depend. Yes. Yes. But she could feel the stress that I wasn't allowing myself to feel. Hmm. And even though I was all those things, reliable, dependable, good mom, you know, when I look back at that, I think that there was also this component of her not feeling as connected because I was doing, 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 and less being, being, being. It's hard. Um, I think my kids have seen me go through a lot of this where I was so stressed. Um, I think that they've appreciated that I'm that I try that I work on it because like they've mm -hmm. said things to me that shows to me that they realize that I'm stressed. Like, you know, my son, he'll just say like, oh, mom, you look really stressed, you know, and that it just it does help me to check myself like, oh, time for a walk. Yeah, I used to, especially early on in the pandemic, really try to force them to do whatever it was that I was doing to help. Like, you're going to come on a walk with me. We're going to go on a hike, you know, and was met with a whole lot of resistance. And so I was like, I'm going to stop recruiting them and I'm just going to model it. They'll see me exercising or doing my boot camp on Zoom in my bedroom. They see me doing my Zoom on my yoga classes on Zoom, you know, and 
maybe that'll rub off on them. But I think really like taking care of yourself and doing it in a way that's unabashed. Like I used to feel kind of guilty about that reading. Like I remember years ago, we were at a birthday party and Maya picked up the Hunger Games at somebody's house. And I was like, oh, that might be like a little rough for her. She might be a little too young for it. And so I decided, because she'd already started reading it, that I would read it with her so that I could get it. But then I got really into it. And I remember one particular day sitting on the couch and reading and the kids were like waiting for me and like wanting stuff. And I was like, you know, I was kind of like, leave me alone. I'm reading. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But now I think I'm just more kind of unabashed about it. And I'm like, I'm reading. This is my time. Mm. I'm doing what I need to do for myself. You do what you need to do for yourself. And hopefully I'm showing you the, a way that's good and a way that's healthy and um, you'll pick it up. But I don't, I don't think that I can force it on them. Well, even if you don't necessarily force what you're doing, what works for you may not work for them. So mm-hmm. they're seeing, seeing this model of responsible self-care. To come back to what you said about our grandmother, you did unconsciously take that upon yourself, that role of selfless caregiving. Mm -hmm. Even though she didn't say it specifically, this is the way you need to do this, it still seeped in. So I think that as you continue to model being committed to, taking good care of yourself and being committed to doing the things that give you mental clarity and, and a real break, they'll figure out for themselves what that looks like for them. And I think that they have started to, right. You know, I mean, like the one kid really took up crocheting and gardening during the pandemic the other kid is really into manga and will read manga online all day in bed. And I don't know anything about it. I don't get it, but I'm like, well, I, I see that it's bringing you a tremendous amount of pleasure. Okay. I definitely tend to think of wisdom. The, the word wisdom might impart gray hair looking to someone who came before you. But what I'm hearing is you can turn wisdom around and turn that towards the younger generation, too. Absolutely. 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 So let's talk a little bit about knowing when to seek help and removing the stigma of getting therapy. Before you talk about it, generally speaking, is therapy for everyone? I don't, you know, I, I think that that's a personal choice. I don't think that there's only one way to heal. And so maybe not, you know, but I think that it is for everyone to be a part of some healing community, some community relationships where you're getting truth and where you're being challenged and loved and supported 
all at the same time. So I don't, I don't know if therapy is for everyone and particularly for, you know, black indigenous people of color because therapy is like still a very unknown kind of world. And most of the time, if you're going to therapy um, as a black or brown person, you're not going to have someone that looks like you. Mm. And, and not only maybe not have someone that looks like you, but also someone that doesn't, it isn't culturally and racially competent. So that makes it even tougher. Yeah. Yeah. But I think that there's more ways to get to that, like through education, you know, um, whether that's a workshop, a seminar, speaking at a church, um, retreats, women love retreats, (laughs) um, (laughs) things, you know, things like that. So I, I think wellness is for everyone. So is it because of the paucity of people like us being in the field? Is that the reason why you went into your line of work? No, maybe, (laughs) you know, Mm. my, my line of of work um, was very interesting. Like it wasn't, it wasn't a plan, you know, it was, I feel like um, it's a vocation for me and, and along period of time it took place I mean like that vocation played out as a pastor um and what I really loved doing was supporting people and connecting them to mental health resources and I have always my favorite question as a kid was why and so I've always wanted to get to the bottom of things and then through my own experiences, I have very, very, very good experience and still do with therapy. I've been fortunate. And so wanting, I think, to learn and grow more and then wanting to be able to give that back and to serve it in a way that maybe some people could receive it differently. Because we were talking about generational and cultural yeah, components to making the decision, the decision of seeking versus not seeking therapy. How does one, say a baby boomer, make a decision to put those things not aside, but not let them hinder the seeking of therapy, if that's the right path? Mm-hmm. Well, one... I think we have to challenge our beliefs about why we're not Mm. um, and, and really determine which one of these beliefs are mine and which one was just handed over to me like a recipe, you know? So I base my Turkey like this because my mom taught me how to do it that way. I never even thought of doing it another way. And this is the right way because this is the way I know. 
And so really challenging those beliefs about getting help and support and weakness and strength, are those mine or did I sort of like inherit them? Um, I think the other thing is really looking at what you've been doing over and over and over and getting the same results. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's time for a change. Without a change, there won't be any change. You've tried everything. It's usually not people's first thought to go seek therapy. And also, it sounds like redefining strength. Yeah. Turn it back to how we started the conversation. And strength doesn't mean that you bear everything on your own and ignore and repress. And to your point earlier, it could be worse. Yeah. How I define strength. To me, strength is about, it's not about like a show of force. Um, You know, I don't look at it necessarily as a physical thing, although it can be. But for me, strength is more about having the courage to do the best thing that needs to be done, whether it's, you know, in your personal life, at at work, you know, being able to make hard decisions, being able to ask for help. The strong Black woman syndrome, I, I think it's interesting. I think it's a blessing and it's a curse, right? We had to be strong in order to survive. Like if you look at historically what Black women have been through and, you know, being taken from our motherland and brought to a different continent as people who were enslaved, surviving through all of those experiences. So I think we had to be strong in order to just make it. But it's also a curse, right? Because it's um, used as a weapon, you know, it's used as a a brand when people just want to shut you up and not really listen to what you say, then they kind of um, use it as a way to write you off. Oh, you know, she's just being a angry black woman. Then it prevents us from doing what we need to do to improve our situation, right? Because you have this attitude of, well, I'm, I'm strong. You know, my ancestors got through these really difficult life circumstances. And so why am I having trouble? Or, you know, I just have to put my head down and I just have to persevere and tough it out. And I think that is detrimental in a way because then that's not really allowing you to to honor your own happiness, right? If you're always just kind of in, I'm strong, I can survive this mode. So where have you seen this play out in your professional life? I spent the first really the bulk of my professional career, I've been attorney for almost 20 years. And so I spent the bulk of that time being a litigator. And so I spent most of that time being a professional advocate or professional adversary. And so I think it's definitely impacted the way that people have perceived me, you know, as as a foe, you know, you have this Black woman on the other side, she's tough. So I have to really, you know, I'm Mr. Plaintiff's attorney, or usually it's Mr. Plaintiff's attorney. Um, On the other side, you know, I think that it made them really feel like they had to really show me or had to be extra tough to try to, you know, put me in my place or show me who's who. And also, I just think that the mentality of I'm strong enough to kind of 
survive anything. I'm strong enough to deal in this really difficult and competitive job kept me in this job that I didn't like for much longer than than I may have stayed in it otherwise. I just thought, oh, well, you know, I'm maybe I'm not liking this job or maybe I don't feel like I'm thriving because I'm not strong enough. And so the answer is for me to toughen up, figure out how to be strong enough to be able to handle it when really it's like everything's not for everybody, right? And so I don't have I don't have to stay in this job as a litigator that was making me miserable. And so if I didn't have that kind of I'm a strong black woman, you know, I'm representing for the for the race and for the gender kind of in the in the back of my mind. And that's a lot of pressure. Mm. It is a lot of pressure because I just read a statistic that said it's something abysmal. Under 10% of uh, attorneys are black women. Yes. It's, um, I, I always find the numbers really shocking and horrifying. It's even, the numbers are even um, lower when it comes to black women attorneys who work in law firms. Okay. What about obligation? How did that fit into your idea of strength and sticking it out, obligation to your ancestors, obligation to those that came before you who sacrificed so much for you to be here and have this opportunity? You know, being the um, first American or first generation American um, child of immigrants, you do really take to heart, you know, all the things that our parents, that our grandparents, that our great grandparents did to get us here, because they, you know, they weren't just living here, you know, they had to uproot themselves and move really far away to a place that was completely foreign to them and, and to make a new life. And so, you know, I know when we were kids, like, we didn't take that lightly, we we understood the, the tremendous sacrifice and um and just how hard that was um and so you know it's like we were raised with this you know nothing comes easy you have to work for everything kind of mentality because that's what our that's what our parents did when they came to the states and so that was just always i think uh, natural for me to think well nothing comes easy you know like i just got to tough this out. My parents came here, they sacrificed so that I could go to the best of colleges. I went to law school, I worked at some of the best law firms, you know, and so I just felt like, in part, I'm doing this um, for them, you know, and to realize the their dreams and the sacrifices that they made for us. And so I then, you know, that doesn't have to be something that's explicitly said, you know, like mom and dad never said, we want you to do X, Y, or Z. They've always talked about us being happy. And I mean, I don't think they, I don't think they understood the um, challenges and the difficulties of being a professional in the United States and what that meant and, and what that brought with it. When I was in law school, I didn't want to apply or for the law review. Somebody talked me into it, but they were like, oh, you know, there's nobody black on the law review here. And I was at law school in this time when um, uh, the state of California had just eliminated affirmative action. And so the, the racial climate was very fraught and there were very few black students in my class. There were like eight of us, I think, out of 300 or so. 
And so I ended up feeling this like this obligation, like to spend my spring break trying to write this article. And I did it and I didn't make it onto the law review, which, you know, in retrospect is no surprise because I didn't want to do it. I wasn't interested in it. I was just doing it because I felt obligated to do it. And so I think that that sense of obligation that we have as, as Black people, as Black women, it, it just shows up in so many ways. And I find myself doing a I have found myself doing a lot or being asked to do a lot of things that I didn't even necessarily want to do just out of a sense of obligation. If you are struggling with some health issues, you know, if mm. you have gastrointestinal issues, mm. if you have unhealthy relationship with food, if you're seeing similar patterns in all of your relationships and the only common denominator is you, if you're complaining about something over and over and over and over, I think those are also indicators and you might have to do it while you're afraid and feeling awkward, you know? So it's, it's walking to that, through that fear and that awkwardness and making a call. So there's strength in vulnerability and strength in Absolutely. taking responsibility for yourself. And Absolutely. you're speaking magical language with me. It's all connected. So even if you think you're keeping it together, people can still tell your daughter could tell my daughter could tell. Yes. You know, maybe your husband can tell, whoever. Yes. It is going to show up somewhere. It's going to show up in your body. Yes. Yes. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So I think we've talked about some of the pros and cons then of not seeking help versus seeking help. And you know what? I want to say one more thing. For me, and I continue to, to do my work in some form or fashion. And by that, I mean, you know, looking from the inside, you know, the things that are there and wanting to be more of who all of us are ultimately meant to be. And to me, that is living in, expressing through love. Mm. And it has to start with me giving that to me mm. so that my daughter or my children don't have to pick up the slack so that my daughter's daughter, whenever that time comes, or son doesn't have to caretake for her in areas where she hasn't taken care of herself. Oh my goodness. That is powerful. I didn't, I would not have ever thought about it that way. Managing my own stress. I feel like I've been my own guinea pig. I've just dealt, been dealing with so much stress, you know, between having a very stressful job, being a parent to two 15 year olds, being a, a wife, um, a homeowner, <laughs> you know, a pet parent, like all the stuff that comes along with that. I'm not saying that my breast cancer diagnosis was 
all because of stress. I think there's probably a genetic component in there, given that mom had it too. I thought it made perfect sense, you know, that I had been diagnosed in this year when I had just been like ripping and running. Like, I mean, like on planes, going to weddings, going on trips, like doing just a ton of work and so much back and forth. And, you know, and then my body was like, no, you're going to have to stop now. Take time off and take care of yourself. Even though you're not saying that it was a cause, it was definitely a wake-up call. Yes. And so I used that cancer diagnosis as this, um, and that time that I took off of work just as this um, incubator period where I just tried all sorts of modalities to um, reduce stress. Things like, you know, oh, I'm going to do regular massages. And I tried you know, Reiki and yoga and acupuncture, you know, and just all these different things. But really, I mean, at the end of the day, it took going to therapy, which is what helped me to figure out how to transition out of being a litigator, because I just had to, I had to stop doing that job that was making me so miserable. And so um, that helped me to figure out, you know, what I wanted to do instead. And then, you know, it just gave me the courage to um, take the step to make the change. And once I made the change, like work life got much better. I'm not saying it's not stressful anymore, but it's just a different kind of stress. I stopped litigating specifically. I was an employment litigator. And so now instead of doing um, litigation, I do um, neutral workplace investigations. Um, and it was a seamless transition. It really made sense to me. I always loved the story, like digging in and finding out what happened. And so that's really what I'm doing now. And I get to do it with a with the neutral cap on instead of this adversarial cap on where I'm fighting with, you know, other lawyers over, over money, basically. Yeah. I care about my work. So I'm just, I'm a real nerd about this investigation work. I love, I, I, I love it. And then what the pandemic taught me is that um, in order to, you know, take care of myself and reduce stress. I don't need to be getting in my car and driving around and doing acupuncture mm. and, you know, going to yoga and all these different places that I can do it all at home. And so I do, I've been keeping up my yoga practice, um, you know, just going for walks is really beneficial to reducing stress and being home all the time. I just really appreciate you know i can just take a 15 minute walk and it's like i feel so much better i bought a um a kindle during um the pandemic and that get just getting back to reading for pleasure which is something that i did as a kid and really mm -hmm. stopped doing as an mm -hmm. adult because mm -hmm. i don't know when you're a lawyer you're reading all the time and so i think i managed to convince myself that you know i don't want to read in my spare time or or I would get so into novels that then I wouldn't want to work and then it was a distraction. Um, and so I decided, you know, it is a distraction, but I don't care because I think I just need it in order to fuel myself for the, you know, the hard work that, that it has to come. So, you know, like I, the kids might catch me in the middle of the day, like with my Kindle, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm just going to read one chapter. I'm just going to read another <laughs> chapter and then I'll get back to my work. But 
like I'm better able to get back into my real work if I've allowed myself to have a just a real mental mental break. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and also just finding um, things that bring you pleasure. That to me is a very strange notion. I don't think we were raised with like this, you know, do what makes you happy or find what makes you have fun kind of mentality. No. And so my therapist has asked me things like, what, what brings you pleasure? And I'm like, I don't know. What are you? (laughs) (laughs) And so I found that, you know, trying to reduce my stress has been also like, instead of thinking of it as like, Oh, I need to do these things so that I won't be so stressed. I need to think of like, what are the things that bring you pleasure? Like not happiness, just pleasure. What are, what can you do in the moment that is going to make you feel good in that moment? And right now reading is um, really high on that list for me. it's mission work it's like it's how do we break the generational influence of the strong black woman syndrome so do you have more examples or other areas we might not think about where trauma carrying trauma might show up in our relationships whether they're friends or family or even co-workers Mm -hmm. well i think that if I look in professional spaces and I think about we're taught to be strong, but we're taught to be strong in ways that are for me, I won't say everybody else, but for me were silence and manipulative (laughs) because that that silence was a posture to me of fake strength. So, for example, <laughs> I hate to pick on my grandmother, but but um, she would say, "We just let them think that they're in charge, and them was the men." <laughs> and so, you know, very silent, right? But behind the scenes, getting things done or silent and becoming resentful and having those feelings come out sideways. Huh, what's an example of that? Sarcasm. Hmm. Okay, so I'm hearing passive aggressive. Yes, exactly, exactly. And I think the other part is, and this goes so deep, and I'm, I'm really talking about as a black woman, even in that strength, right, that's not direct, but indirect through passive aggressive behavior, mm-hmm. it incites a lack of respect for, um, in this case, as we're talking about, for male partners. It's a version of it. Right. So I'm I'm not saying anything. I'm not yelling and screaming. 
but I don't see you as my partner. I see you as someone to get to do what I get you to do what I need you to do without mm. letting you know that. Mm. other thing that came up for me when you were talking was this idea of respect as silence, meaning that if you are having an issue, if you do want, if you are having a conflict, you just don't say anything because it's polite. Mm -hmm. And because that is what it is to show respect is to Mm -hmm. be quiet. Mm -hmm. But then what do you do with those feelings? So I think that's the other side of it. It's one extreme to the other. That's when you become, you know, the other extreme is the angry black woman. So the angry black woman to pull in the wisdom of our mutual friend, Joyce Martyr is hiding sadness. Oh, sadness, fear, and a whole lot of other stuff. I mean, I think what we're hiding as black women there are some similarities to other women. And then there's a whole nother hiding that's going on. A person that I, that I work with in terms of um, consultation and coaching and that kind of thing, she was talking about, and I love this. She said that you can't have empathy for yourself or anyone else until you learn how to become angry. This is a drop the mic moment. Oh my God. Okay. Help me, help me process this. Say more. Okay. So I'll, I'll use myself for an example. Um, as an only child and with one parent, my mom and her being elderly, I've, Elderly, but but very healthy. Emotionally, nobody asked me to do this. Emotionally, I've taken on a lot of the emotional responsibility for her. And when that gets heavy, I become irritated, frustrated, angry. But she's my mother. And so then... I feel guilty about that. And then when I do let that come out, it's, you know, like the angry black woman, it's all at once. It has simmered and simmered and simmered. And a dear friend of mine was saying, well, maybe you could, she said, I see these things, but maybe you could have empathy for your mom. And I'm a pretty empathetic person. And right within it was like, no, I can't because I don't feel safe enough to. Then I realized because I, you know, when when I heard this about the anger, I realized I've never really had sort of clean anger. Mm. And even if that's not expressing it to my mother, just, you know, so that's a block, right? Because I'm holding it in. Yes. And if I'm holding that in, there's no passage to empathy. 
because that unexpressed anger is, you know, kind of the iron door that's shut, that's not allowing me to get to empathy. I don't want to, I never want to be disrespectful, but we didn't exactly have it modeled for us as to how to express anger. Lisa talks about expressing clean anger. I'm actually still kind of bewildered as to what that means. <laughs> um, I think I'm starting to learn um, because I'm much more of a, you know, repress my anger type of person because I don't think we were really allowed to express anger. I think it was viewed as, you know, disrespectful or, yeah, disruptive maybe. Um, and so, but I'm, I'm, I'm learning. I think I'm getting really good at expressing it. For me, it's all about having hard conversations. Um, it's not about, you know, screaming or yelling or anything like that. I, I think it's about having hard conversations. And that's not something that we were taught how to do when, when we were kids. Because um, it's hard, right? It's really hard to have hard conversations where you're, you know that you and the other person aren't going to agree, you know that you have differences in opinion, but you really do want to listen to each other and be heard and to come to a place of mutual respect or at least understanding. To me, that's what I think clean anger is, right? Like it's not about name calling or, you know, like, necessarily doing things that are going to be damaging to the relationship, but I think it should be, um, it can be really constructive and can be really helpful to the relationship when you do have a hard conversation. And I know when, when Lisa said using sarcasm, I was like, Oof, yeah, like I remember one time I made one of my kids cry just by using sarcasm, you know, like I'm not a, I'm not a screamer. I'm not a yeller. I'm, you know, not a, I, I don't, I'm not like somebody who's going to cuss you out, but you know, I think I can have a sharp tongue in my own way. And I really had to, I, I was like, wow, I'm really sorry. And mm. wow. My sarcasm can hurt. Mm. So that's and it's another- not constructive. It's not constructive, but what I also heard there is the ability to say, to recognize and say, sorry, that's the responsibility again, too. Yeah. Because that's hard. Yeah. Especially. to look at yourself and to, to acknowledge when you've done something wrong, especially to your kid. But I just had to like. You know, after all the feedback from my husband about me holding in anger and then letting it out in Mm. ways of sarcasm, you know, Mm. like kind of those kind of cutting or biting comments, like, then I'm hearing it from my kid, too. And I'm like, hmm, (laughs) you know, at some point you have to listen to the feedback you're getting, right?
So how do you redefine that for yourself? If you've had this framework from which you've been working for such a long time, how do you unlearn some of those things and, and allow yourself the freedom to have these revelations? So that takes me back to what we were talking about earlier. You can have revelation on your own. We do, right? We can get great insights uh, and even make significant changes. But I think that the most impactful and long lasting is if you are in a relationship that is professional where you learn how to sort of re-relationship within the context of that safe relationship. So how does that look? Well, if we get hurt in relationship or if we are angry because of some facet of relationship, if we're blocked or stuck because of some relationship, then we're going to get healed in relationship. You can't fix that on your own because we're meant to be connected. And so even though at some level, I know those words that my coach was speaking to me, I know those words, by her speaking to me and in the tone and inflection, something in me was like, okay, I can look at this a different way. I do have options. Another thing I heard from what you were saying is a need for objectivity. So even though you're saying that you're healing in relationship, in a safe relationship, it can't always be within the context of someone who is in an intimate relationship with you already. Because it's hard to take a bird's eye view. Yes. Because you share so much. Yes. As humans, we are wired for connection, period. We're meant to be in relationship. No man is an island. And so to cut up parts of myself by holding in the anger, by showing up as strong and not vulnerable, right? I am killing some life force within me. Because those parts aren't connected. I'm not connected to myself as much as I could. I'm not connected in relationships as much as I could. Because I have all of this armor that is guarding me against connection. And it hurts. That's why people's most primal fear is, you know, fear of abandonment or rejection. Because we're met to, uh, we're wired to connect. I'm so happy you said that because when I heard armor that resonated very strongly with me, what's the difference between armor and healthy boundaries? Oh, 
So armor is like this, shoulders up, you know, tension, I'm feeling it, right? And I might not feel it because I'm so used to being like this that I don't notice it until I breathe and it's like, oh, wow, it's really tight. Boundaries are relaxed and boundaries aren't about anyone else but you. It's how do I keep my heart, my soul, my person safe? And if I can keep myself safe, then I'm probably going to do less harm to myself and you. And so I think of boundaries as fences, waist-high fences, picket fence. You can see through them, a gate, right? And I am in charge about who comes in, how far they come, where they go, you know? So I might have someone that is um, the Amazon person, right? And so he can come through my yard to my door and drop that package. Before COVID, he can ring the doorbell. I can open it and receive the package. He's not going to come in my house, right? If I have a dear friend, she can come in. She can come through the door. She can come at my house. It's doesn't matter if my house is up to par or not, right? And so it it boundaries keep out those things that feel intrusive and unsafe. And it's not about the other person. I need this to stay present with myself. So I had a very visual reaction to that armor war. I need to defend myself. It's unyielding. It's rigid. It is about the other person completely not being able to penetrate your defenses because you've built them so strongly versus boundaries, relaxed, peaceful, uh, discerning. You're using, because you're relaxed, you can access this place within yourself to say, is this okay? Is this not okay? Am I feeling safe? Am I not feeling safe? Yes. 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 And they can shift, but they are up to you. No one has to agree with them. You just have to decide if my boundaries aren't being respected then what's the next step that I need to do to take care of myself? Nobody can make me break my boundaries. Hmm. They're not ultimatums. Mm. There's flexibility. There's balance. There's peace. And peace doesn't mean that there aren't other feelings that come with that. That's right. Sometimes some boundaries are, are difficult, but it's saying I'm choosing to love myself. And the outcome of that is I'm choosing not to make war with you. I couldn't have said it better. I, I just, wow. Thank you. Mm-hmm.
Do you have a question for me? I have a question. I think about, because it, it's so fascinating to me, the, the intersection of yoga and being a medical doctor and stress and how maybe in the medical field you're trained to, to deal with that and all that is valuable. And so I guess I'm saying, how do you approach that whole notion of redefining strong Black woman through that lens? That's a great question. Thank you for asking it. I've thought about this a lot. I've thought about how the MD aspect has given me the education, the education, the study, the knowledge about what happens with the body when the body undergoes stress mm -hmm. and how chronic stress has real, true physiological cellular implications. Our bodies respond to stress. We're supposed to have a fight or flight response. Chronically prolonged, then those things just lead to long-term problems. So that has put me more in tune with what I've learned from the yoga is to be quiet, to pay attention, to give myself space, to notice when I'm in trouble. I didn't know that before. I would just say, mm -hmm. I have a headache because I have a headache or mm -hmm. my neck hurts because my neck hurts or my stomach is upset because, okay, it's upset. Maybe I ate something, whatever. And I would just want to brush that off. Mm -hmm. Now I'm more in tune with, let's stop. What's going on right now? More curious, willing to ask myself questions as mm -hmm. to, to your point. Am I feeling threatened right now? Mm -hmm. What do I need right now? What don't I need right now? Do I need to say something right now? Do I need to remove myself from the situation? Just being able to tell when I'm in trouble. I've been able to bridge the two disciplines mm -hmm. to know when mm -hmm. I'm in trouble and to know that I'm responsible for getting myself out of trouble. You can't control outside circumstances. Right. You simply right. cannot. But what you do have some control over is your response. And the more responsive you can become, the better you're going to be able to listen to your cues and subtle body cues or, or emotional cues or mental cues and know what to do for yourself. Mm -hmm. But that takes space and silence. And to your point earlier, relaxation mm -hmm. and practice. Yes. What is, um, I was curious to hear how you would answer the question that you asked me at the beginning about um, what does strength mean to you? For me, strength has meant boundaries, establishing boundaries and taking good care of myself and not people pleasing so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been a very damaging pattern in my life, and it took me 40 years and a, and a mm -hmm. great big scare to finally go, it's enough. Like, you, you just mm -hmm. can't, you just can't leave yourself so wide open, and you can't show yourself so little respect at the end of the day and value yourself so little because people see it. Mm -hmm. And there's, 
the experiences I had, I don't regret them because they taught me about this, what it really means to love myself, what it means to be proud of myself, really be proud of myself from the inside out. My interactions in retrospect, the damaging ones make sense because I took part in them. I was not a victim, even though I wanted to believe that at the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's hard. Mm -hmm. And I see that for, I see that with more so with my youngest daughter, um, because she has a tendency to want people to feel okay and to feel like she's doing the right thing. And so sometimes it's, she almost feels apologetic for wanting something that goes against the grain or, or ruffling feathers or making, causing trouble. She apologizes a lot, but I think at the end of the day, she also knows that even though it's not fun and it's difficult, that it's so important to advocate for yourself because it's not anybody else's responsibility to do so. And nobody else is going to do it. Lisa, what is your personal definition of what it means to be healthy? I think it means being in a space of self-love, self-acceptance, and extending that same grace to others with boundaries. My personal definition of what it means to be healthy is taking care of your body, your mind, and your spirit. So it's not just physicals. It's not just, you know, eating your vegetables and your fruit and exercising. It's also, you know, talking to people when you need it, talking to a professional when you need it, maintaining your relationships, Um, Doing things that make your spirit feel happy, whether it's going to the park and staring at trees or going to church or going for a hike or meditating. I think it's all of those components rolled in. You're, You're paying attention to all of them. Thank you so very much for a most valuable and rich conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you. This poem is called Hidden. Woman, why do you whisper so? Why do you walk on tiptoe? Surrendering to the bullshit status quo? Surrounded by the walking dead everywhere you go? Woman, come out of hiding. Be home. Be home. Be home. Conditioned to always do the right thing. Pining away for that wedding ring. 
feeling like a puppet on a string, tension rising, ready to spring. Woman, come out of hiding. Be home, be home, be home. Banging your head in your own cage, suffocating from your blinding rage, turning a blind eye to pain unassuaged, hoping it will go away with age. Woman, come out of hiding. Be home, be home, be home. Willing to compromise yourself for connection because you're so afraid of rejection? In constant search of affection? Self-loathing? Staring at your reflection? Woman, come out of hiding. Be home. Be home. Be home. Dear wise women, thank you for growing our community. Keep using your wisdom and emotional intelligence to share this episode with someone in your social circle who will benefit from hearing it. Your grandma and your mom need yoga. Maybe you need yoga too. I teach yoga to wise women. I believe in empowering and educating wise women to thrive on their terms at every stage of life. Let's hear what a wise woman has to say. I'm a worrier. It's a little much, I think. And yoga always calmed me down. You know, it gave me a, a positive focus. It's, everything's going to be okay. Uh, it's just really been like a centerpiece in my life. And I didn't have that until virtual yoga. To learn more, connect with me at yogimd.net. And finally, podcast theme music is by my niece, Maya Bishop, on vocals. My daughter, Lizzie Kelly, on guitar and bass. Yours truly on percussion and produced by Tim Buer. Thanks for being here. See you next time.